This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome. This is Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg on the frequencies 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa. I'm your host. My name is Kope Diwana Mane. With me is Wisani Matebula and Tami Kuzan. Our top stories this hour, the ICC case against Kenya's president suffers yet another setback and the 24th ordinary session of the Executive Council of the African Union opens in Ethiopia. In our economics news, Egypt's central bank holds its largest exceptional auction to sell $1.5 billion from its foreign reserves and in sports, Kenya's Rugby Sevens team fails to carry East African hopes. All these and more coming up in details, but first it's time for the news. Good evening. Pressure is mounting on Zimbabwe opposition leader Morgan Tsangirai to step down. A senior official in the Movement for Democratic Change Party says uh, Tsangirai has become a liability to the party. Deputy Treasurer and former Energy Minister Elton Mangoma says Tsangirai's private life was a major factor in the MDC doing badly in last July's elections. He says Tsangirai also alienated himself with the electorate with his wealthy accumulation. Tsangirai says he will not resign as MDC leader. But the fact of the matter is that uh, they stole the election massively. Uh, and for somebody to suggest that I should resign because I went into election, ah, come on. It was not an individual decision. The African Union has lifted its four-year suspension of Madagascar following democratic elections last month. These are the first elections since the 2009 coup. The Pan-African Bloc's Peace and Security Council announced the lifting of the suspension of Madagascar just two days after the country's new leader, Harry Rajauna Rimampianina, was sworn in. The AU say the island nation is permitted to rejoin the bloc. Several countries are currently suspended from the bloc, including Egypt. Attackers armed with guns and explosives killed 22 people at a busy church service in a northeast Nigerian village in a region where Islamist sect Boko Haram is resisting a military crackdown. Witnesses say Boko Haram set off bombs and fired into the congregation in the Catholic Church in Waga Chakawa village in Adamawa state before burning houses and taking residents hostage during a four-hour siege. President Goodluck Jonathan is struggling to contain Boko Haram in remote rural regions in the country's northeast corner. South Africa's a cappella group, Larry Smith Black Mambazo, says former President Nelson Mandela's message of peace will never be forgotten. Manager Mitch Goldstein, who accepted the group's fourth Grammy Award for Best World Music Album, is on his way to meet the group that are currently on tour in the state of Virginia in the United States. He says it was important for the group to dedicate the award to Mandela for the message he wanted them to spread throughout the world 
through their music. When Mizan was relating, he met the group. He said to Joseph Shabalala and the rest of the group that they had a mission, that, that they had to sing for a message of peace to people all over the world. And we've always had that in mind. That's why we dedicated the CD when we put it out to him. The win coming less than two months after the diva's passing, and the group really wanted to dedicate it to his memory, to his message of peace, so that it would continue on forever. The European Union has released $192 million in aid to Guinea after resuming full cooperation in the West African nation following a successful return to civilian rule. The European Union, Guinea's main donor, suspended ties with the mineral-rich nation following a 2008 military coup. It conditioned the resumption of cooperation on a return to civilian rule. After the election of President Alpha Conde in 2013, a parliamentary vote needed to complete the process was repeatedly delayed as opposition parties and Conde's ruling coalition argued over the organization of the poll. Finally, Palestinian chief negotiator Saeb Erekat says comments by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at the World Economic Forum, makes it clear that it's against the establishment of a Palestinian state. Erakat was reacting to comments by Netanyahu that Israel will not evacuate Jewish settlements built on occupied land that the Palestinians want for their future state. Netanyahu has publicly supported the two-state solution during U.S.-sponsored talks. Israel's settlements, which are illegal under international law, are a key sticking point that is preventing peace talks from making any visible progress. And that's your news. The Hague-based International Criminal Court has indefinitely delayed the hearing of the case against Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta following a request by Chief Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda. Kenyatta is facing charges of crimes related to the killing of more than 1,300 people during the 2007 disputed presidential elections. Bensouda's request follows reports that three key prosecution witnesses have either withdrawn or disappeared mysteriously. James Shimanyula reports. The delay in trying Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta will enable ICC Chief Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda to get more witnesses to meet the high standard of evidence bearing in mind that she has already lost three important witnesses. One of Kenya's renowned lawyers, Agina Ojoang, is optimistic that despite the delays, the case against Kenyatta will be heard. The case will proceed once certain things are done. One of them is the current investigation going on. The other one, it may be necessary for the ICC to have the accused persons in custody to assure the witness of their safety so that they can go ahead and give evidence. Agino Juang has this explanation for why the trial has been delayed. The delay has been occasioned by the strength of the 
accused the inductees who right from the beginning of this case were in a position to influence evidence coming out of Kenya. Since the ICC confirmed the charges facing Kenyatta a year ago, witnesses expected to testify against him have either changed their mind, withdrawn or disappeared mysteriously. Agino Juang hints at the reason behind the withdrawal. Witnesses have withdrawn. This means they are not confident of their security. The witness protection system in Kenya is a, a security item and a security department that the ultimate head of it is, of course, the president. So people feel unsecure to continue being witnesses when there is no cover of their identity. Secondly, quite a number of witnesses have disappeared or have been found dead. So it is a very grave matter. It is grave in that the ICC has to ascertain who has killed its witnesses, who has made its witnesses disappear, and who has intimidated the witnesses to pull out. Kenyans have expressed mixed reactions on the delay of the Kenyatta case. 19-year-old Faith Kitivo, who has just completed her high school education, thinks the time has come for the ICC to stop pushing for trying Kenyatta. As for me, I think the case should be withdrawn from ICC. I think Kenya is an independent country and we should not take our cases to ICC. We should handle the cases in Kenya. 18-year-old Issa Juma Balala, a Nairobi High School student, decried the delay in trying Kenyatta at the ICC. This case is an old case. We would have even forgotten it. Now we are seeing Bensuda saying she has no evidence. That is what surprises us. Let Bensuda leave the case to continue so that we see what happened. We want the truth to be known. We trust the ICC. John Mbindio, a Nairobi businessman aged 56, explains why the cases against Kenyatta should be withdrawn. It's not even a horror or root who caused disturbances during the 2007 elections. So many people were involved, some of whom have not been accused. James Misoga, a businessman aged 62, wants the trial to proceed because, as he puts it, the ICC has ample evidence against Kenyatta. We are told that oh, there is no enough evidence. And enough evidence is there, eh? according to me, because there is, is uh, one person who was uh, banned eh? and his family, about 10 or 11 people, were, were dead, isn't it? Even that person only can make the case go through. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The 24th ordinary session of the Executive Council of the African Union has officially opened in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. The session held under the theme Year of Agriculture and Food Security in Africa seems to deliberate on different reports of ministerial meetings organized by the AU Commission during the last six months. It will be followed by the Heads of State and Government Summit scheduled to begin on Thursday. Tlantlamathangu reports from Addis Ababa. The opening ceremony featured, among others, welcome remarks by the chairperson of the Executive Council, Dr. Tedros Armand Gebreyesus, a statement by the chairperson of the African Union Commission, Dr. Nkosa Zanadlamini Zuma, and a statement by the UN Undersecretary General and Executive Secretary of the UNECA, Carlos Lopes. The chairperson of the Executive Council, Dr. Tedros Armand Gebreyesus, 
called for the commitments to meet the aspirations of the people of Africa by 2063 as part of Agenda 2063, which is a call for action and a strategic framework and roadmap to achieve continental development goals. The Agenda 2063 framework document will be presented for consideration by AU policy organs at the session, and the final agenda for 2063 is expected in June this year. Dr. Gabriessus acknowledged Africa's challenges that militate its prospects for peace and security. Excellencies, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, unfortunately, we're meeting against the backdrop of a deteriorating peace and security situation in our continent as a result of what has been unfolding in South Sudan and Central African Republic. The situation in these two sisterly countries has indeed been very alarming and there is no justification for the continuation of the crisis in those places even for a day. Unless we find urgent solution, the situation in these two countries will have serious implications for peace and security in the region and indeed the whole continent. The fact that these humanitarian tragedies are unfolding in the two countries at a time when we are talking about African innocence must be painful to all of us. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us to help those two African states in restoring peace and stability and addressing their internal challenges. In keeping with the theme, Dr. Nkosa Zana Lamini Zuma said 2014 is the year of agriculture and security and will also mark the 10th anniversary of the adoption of the Comprehensive African Agriculture Development Program, CADAP. For Africa to ensure sustained and inclusive growth of 7% and higher, agriculture and agro-processing are critical. Since it constitutes a large part of the GDPs of our continent, the CADAP goals of increasing agricultural investments and productivity, of growing agro-business and value chains, of expanding infrastructure, skills and research for agriculture, are all part of what needs to be done for this year. We must also take practical steps to ensure that Africa has a greater say on the pricing of our agricultural goods and other products. In particular, we will take special measures to ensure that women, who are the largest part of the agricultural workforce and food producers, have access to training and capital and are supported to form cooperatives, marketing structures, and agribusinesses. UN Undersecretary General and Executive Secretary of UNECA, Carlos Loops, says given the fact that about 65% of Africans rely on agriculture as their primary source of livelihood, and despite the wide variety of crops, animals, and farm practices across the continent, it's not surprising that Africa has the lowest levels of agricultural productivity in the world. Around 226 million people, or one out of every five people in Africa, are chronically food insecure. In fact, compared to the rest of the world, while Africa hosts around 15% of the world's population, it is home to close to one-third of those affected by hunger in our planet. That was the UN Undersecretary General and Executive Secretary of UNECA, Carlos Lobes. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Tlanda Masangu in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia.
Syrian government delegates at peace talks in Geneva, Switzerland, have agreed to allow women and children to immediately leave a besieged district in the central city of Homs in Syria. Homs is one of the country's largest cities and has been pounded by government assault to reclaim control from rebel forces. The breakthrough follows two rounds of talks that took place yesterday between the United Nations mediator Lakhdar Brahimi and representatives of Syria's government and the opposition. The talk started last week with the hope to resolve the three-year conflict. More from researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs, Tom Wheeler. I think it's the very first baby steps, as it were, the first tiny movements forward where they have been able to agree on these rather local issues, uh, particularly concerning the city of Oms, which has been under siege by the government for a very long time and by allowing the women and children to come out, they are showing some humanitarian willingness to cooperate. They're causing a little difficulty by wanting the names of these people who want to come out, and that creates suspicion again on the other side. There has been hostilities in the relationship between the opposition and government delegations, which continue to dominate the issues at these meetings. Mm. Now, how does this affect the talks after this agreement? Do you think uh, this will actually taint the ongoing process? Well, I think the very you know, small steps that have been taken are a good sign that there is a degree of willingness to talk, even though up to now the two delegations have not been prepared to speak directly to each other. And Ambassador Brahimi, the UN mediator, has had to carry the messages back and forward between the two sides. But at least there is some sign of movement, the willingness to allow humanitarian relief food stuff and medicine to go into OMS, the willingness to let the women and children come out. But the Syrian government have asked for a list of the men, rather, that want to come out, and that's created suspicion. Why do they want this list? Do they want to know who's in there and so on? There's also the possibility of a prisoner exchange. So, you know, these little steps a sign that something at last is happening. Up to now, it's been a total standoff to the great detriment of the people of Syria. Now, Tom, the issue of who is going to lead the country is being avoided at the talks. How can this issue be approached without leading the collapse of this process? I think, you know, again, it's better to try and work on the areas where there is some possibility of success rather than taking on that big issue because the Syrian government have said that there's no way that President Bashar al-Assad can be excluded from government, whereas the coalition, the opposition coalition, have said that's their bottom line. So rather deal with the, the smaller issues where there's less controversy, which are in the interests of the people who are living in these terrible conditions, and move slowly from there to build up a bit of confidence between the two sides. Now, the issue of the fact of the United States and Russia taking opposite sides in the war affect the United Nations intervention in this particular conflict. How does that play a role? Well, I think what's happened now is since the agreement on the removal of the Syrian chemical weapons, the United States and Russia have actually been working together with the United Nations, with Ambassador Brahimi, to try and bring some sort of resolution so that 
earlier standoff has taken somewhat of a backseat because I think, you know, the major powers have realized that it's important to get forward rather than take absolute positions, which, again, are not to the detriment of the Syrian people. Now, with that in mind, how do we move on? What are the recommendations that you would have, Tom, in order to see more of a progression touching the lives of ordinary people on the ground? Yeah, it's difficult for me at this distance to say that, you know, this sort of thing you're dealing with a local issue, Homs. There may be other cities, Hama, Aleppo, where there are similar situations where it's possible to deal with these basic humanitarian issues and move on from the local issues to the bigger national issues once the sort of confidence has been built up between the two sides. And that was Tom Wheeler, researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs, talking to Channel Africa's Benjamin Moshadama. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Over 20,000 Angolan refugees are currently in Zambia. The government of Zambia and Angola, with the support of the International Organization of Migration and the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees last week, started with the last phase of a voluntary repatriation process, which will culminate at the end of this month. Our correspondent in Angola, Phil Nello, reports from Luanda. Angolan refugees in the Republic of Zambia have, until the end of January, the last chance to voluntarily return home. Last week, UNHCR and the government of Angola have started bringing back home about 1,000 refugees who expressed the interest to return. The first group have arrived in Angola in eastern province of Mushiko last week with the support of the UN High Commission for Refugee and the International Organization for Migration. Hans Lanschoff, UN High Commission for Refugee in Angola, told the media that this is the last phase of voluntary repatriation of Angolan refugees from Zambia. The UN High Commission for Refugee Representative to Angola, Hans Lushoff, also said that in Zambia there are still over 20,000 Angolans, most of whom decided to stay behind. However, the UN official said that the Zambian government has only given possibilities for 10,000 Angolans to remain in its territory and the others will have to return or find other solutions. From Zambia in particular, and we talk now about a last phase of a repatriation that has already started many years before, from Zambia, like from all other neighboring countries, many Angolan refugees have already returned home since the peace agreement. Uh, and But still an important number of Angolans remain in Zambia and even more in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So we still have to offer these persons the opportunity to either return home or to find another durable solution. In Zambia in particular, the number was still above 20,000 persons. The government of Zambia offers local integration to a maximum of 10,000 Angolans, depending on fulfilling certain criteria and depending on obtaining Angolan 
Post-arrival information and counseling, family tracing and reunification, shelter and interim care, as well as support to school and skills training as required. The UN High Commission for Refugee Representative to Angola, Hans Lanschoff, also said that IOM has been providing air transportation for Angolans who have arrived in bordering provinces on their own to reach Luanda, the capital city. Since last July, August, we have had regular semi-spontaneous returns, meaning people would come by land, get support to pay their travel cost from the refugee settlement in Zambia up to their destination in Angola. Now, because the International Organization of Migration had certain funds to pay for repatriation, it was decided to have, again, a repatriation by air, IOM, is uh, renting four planes of some 40-45 persons each arrive in Luena, in Moshiko province, for this month's January and into February, as long as uh, there are candidates and as long as the funds last. That's a figure that obviously changes from day to day. According to the information that we received from our colleagues, there were somewhat over 300 persons travel ready. IOM had budgeted for 1,000. We assume that in the course of the weeks, other persons are travel ready and that uh, IOM will be able to fully utilize uh, the funds in order to bring the maximum number of persons uh, back in, in this way. Everything went very smooth uh, last week. The local authorities were present. The Ministry of uh, Social Welfare and Reintegration is always present with the provincial uh, delegation. The border service does its work in the transit uh, center. The other authorities are there. It went very smooth. People went right away from the airport to a, a transit center where they, the details are taken of the person's registration takes place. There was Mr. Hans Lanschow, UN High Commission for Refugee Representative to Angola. Meanwhile, Angolan Ambassador to Zambia, Balbina da Silva, revealed that at least 4,000 Angolans have already been selected by the Zambian government to remain on its territory. The Angolan diplomat said that the refugees selected are now receiving identification documents so they can be properly integrated into the Zambian society. The UNHCR, Zambian and Angolan authorities, gathered recently in Zambia and we were informed that Zambia government selected 4,000 Angolans for local reintegration. For those uh, 4,000 to remain in Zambia, it was necessary the issuing of uh, IDs and passports. The IDs have started to be issued by a multi-sectorial team that worked in the two refugee camps existing in Zambia. Presently, we are also working on the repatriation of the Angolans. About 1,000 Angolans are expected to be sent back home. There was the Angolan ambassador to Zambia, Balbina da Silva. Angola and Zambia 
IOM and the UNHCR are working together on the last phase of a voluntary repatriation of over 20,000 Angolan refugees in Zambia. Phil Nello, Channel Africa, Angola. While the international community has welcomed the signing of a ceasefire between warring parties in South Sudan, they have expressed hope that the ceasefire will be implemented quickly to avert further displacement within and outside the country. Nearly half a million people are homeless and the United Nations warns that... uh, that number could reach 600,000 by March. The Global Migration Authority, the IOM, has been at the forefront of efforts to assist internally displaced people. The IOM is supporting the overall coordination of humanitarian services at sites where people have sought shelter. Here's more from the IOM's Matthew Graydon in Juba. Well, this is a crisis on a very large scale. It is estimated that nearly half a million people have been displaced from their homes and 67,000 of those people are seeking protection on UN compounds throughout the country. IOM has taken an active role in working with this displaced population, starting on the UN compounds and expanding out to other sites in the country where people have been displaced. We have a large presence in the country and we've maintained that presence throughout the crisis. Right now, ILM is working to firstly register people who have been displaced. This is a very important step in providing assistance in that it allows humanitarian actors to have a accurate number of the people in different areas. And following registration, we are providing assistance, and that includes distributing relief supplies, including plastic sheets, blankets, sleeping mats, cooking kits, the basic supplies that people need, because so many people fled with sometimes only the clothes on their back. So people are desperately in need of basic supplies for living. So our IOM and its partners have reached over 100,000 people with these supplies, and uh, we are continuing those efforts. And Matthew, how is IOM managing to mobilize funds and resources? I mean, in the case of South Sudan, we're talking about large numbers of people in need of aid and assistance. Certainly. Well, we've received very positive support from our, our donor partners. Recently, we received from the UN Central Emergency Response Fund an allocation of $8 million to support these camp management and camp coordination efforts. We've also received funding from USAID Office for Foreign Disaster Assistance. That's $11 million to support our efforts through our Rapid Response Fund, through which IOM can engage partners on the ground, local NGOs, international NGOs, and other partners, to deliver assistance immediately in areas throughout the country. So IOM is, is managing a large fund that enables assistance to reach people very quickly. We've also received support from other partners, and we feel well prepared from the support, and we appreciate our donors very much for providing this as this crisis is expected to continue growing. Earlier on, you mentioned that about half a million people are already internally displaced. Do you foresee the number of displaced people further increasing? It seems to be the trend that the numbers are growing. This is a half a million people that we have estimated in conjunction with the UN so far. To date, IOM has registered in the locations where we've been able to access population 82,000 people. However, we know that based on the estimate of half a million people, that there are a number of populations who are displaced that we are not able to access due to insecurity. So we do expect this number to continue growing. And Matthew, a number of aid organizations in South Sudan have reported that insecurity is hampering their work. Is this also a problem for IOM? Are you finding it difficult to operate freely in South Sudan? 
Insecurity has been a major challenge. We are working in some of the more contentious areas of the country, including Malakal, Bor, and Bentu. We have a staff presence in, in all of these places. But often, particularly as was recently the case in, in Malakal, where there was heavy fighting, we have not been able to respond to needs to the full extent that is required because of the insecurity. But we are working within these constraints as much as we can, working with our partners from the UN and from NGOs and other organizations to try to provide as much support as we can. But this is a major concern for all humanitarian agencies working in the country right now. And finally, Matthew, has the IOM together with its partners started thinking of a long-term plan for IDPs? Um, at stage, we are just looking to respond to the immediate needs, but we are also, through our role as the camp coordination, looking at could be longer-term solutions. As you know, there's a lot of unpredictability to what direction this crisis will take. So we are just looking now at responding to the most immediate needs and also working to plan for what could be potential contingencies should this crisis change course. And that was Matthew Graydon, spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration on the Line from Juba, South Sudan, talking to Channel Africa's Jane Matebula. Countries around the globe yesterday marked World Leprosy Day with the focus once again on improving the lives of some of the world's poorest and most marginalized people. Leprosy, also known as the Hansen disease, is a chronic infectious disease which mainly affects the skin, the peripheral nerves, mucosa of the upper respiratory tract and the eyes. If not detected early, it can lead to deformities and blindness. According to the World Health Organization, more than 180,000 people had leprosy at the beginning of 2012, mainly in Asia and in Africa. For more on this, here's uh, Peter Lopscher, Executive Director of the Leprosy Mission Southern Africa. People around the world think that leprosy has died out. Most people, when I speak to them, think that leprosy is something which disappeared from the world many decades or even many centuries ago. Sadly, leprosy affects many, many people, two to three hundred thousand people get leprosy every year. And the purpose of World Leprosy Day is to remind people that leprosy is still a modern illness, that it can be successfully treated. For a disease that has tortured the human race all through history and has such a huge impact on various aspects of human life, why is the world still not free from it? Leprosy goes hand in hand with poverty, and of course there are still many countries where poverty is deeply entrenched, particularly in Asia and Latin America. And although leprosy can be successfully treated, and I must stress that the numbers are coming down, despite that, because of the very high levels of poverty in those countries, it's going to take many, many years before leprosy is finally eradicated. We know that advances have been made in the control and treatment of leprosy over the years. You indicated how the numbers are declining. What challenges do you feel need to be overcome if countries are to make leprosy a thing of the past? The biggest challenge is the stigma attached to leprosy in many parts of Asia and possibly in some parts of Africa as well. People fear the disease greatly. People who develop the disease are often shunned by their communities. And this makes it very difficult to get treatment to the people who need it most. And those are the people with early leprosy. Now, when we look at the situation in Africa, how are countries on the continent faring in tackling the problem of stigma, which I understand still keeps some people from seeking early treatment? Leprosy has never been as stigmatized in South Africa as it has been in other parts of the world. 
And I'm glad to say that most leprosy patients are well accepted by their communities, by their families, and at school, and at work, and so on. Very occasionally problems will surface, but they are the exception rather than the rule. Let's come to the role organizations such as yours play in ensuring that leprosy remains high up on the agenda of health authorities. How do you manage to do this? The leprosy mission, as does many other leprosy organizations, provides treatment for leprosy. In many parts of the world we run hospitals, we also run leprosy treatment programs. We don't all only focus on leprosy, we focus also on the needs of people with other disabling conditions. We provide surgery, for example, in India for people with eye problems, apart from the eye problems associated with leprosy. In addition to that, we speak to health authorities about the need to expand leprosy control activities and really to keep leprosy on the health agenda. That's very important. The symptoms of leprosy, I understand, are very subtle and they come about very slowly. Would you say that your awareness programs have managed to help some people to identify these early signs? We do run awareness programs right throughout the world, and that includes South Africa. Look, leprosy is a rare disease. We don't expect everyone to know the early signs of it because leprosy can mimic other illnesses and so on. But what we do try to do is get across the basics of leprosy to health workers in rural areas where they're likely to come into contact with leprosy patients so that they are aware of the possibility of the disease and if they see someone whom they think may have leprosy, that they're able to refer them to a doctor or a dermatologist for confirmation of the diagnosis. Finally there, talk us through some of the activities you embarked on this year to mark World Leprosy Day. We had a special celebration with the KwaZulu-Natal Department of Health. The Leprosy Mission and the KwaZulu-Natal Department of Health have been working in partnership for 30 years. And so we celebrated the 30-year partnership at a lovely function at Prince Mshieni Memorial Hospital in Durban. And that was Peter Lopsha, Executive Director for the Leprosy Mission Southern Africa, speaking to Elizabeth Mapari. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. South Africa's business and government delegation, led by Finance Minister Pravin Gordon, had an opportunity to mix and mingle with some of the world's key decision makers and reassure investors about the country's strength as an investment destination at the just-concluded 44th World Economic Summit in Davos, Switzerland. Ministers had to uh, update global business leaders on the country's plans to raise the level of economic growth under the auspices of the National Development Plan. The South African delegation to Davos included representatives from the Industrial Development Corporation, an organization playing a crucial role in industrial transformation right across Africa. It provides development funding support for projects in various sectors, including telecommunications, energy, water and sanitation and transport. Its chairperson, Mon Tlatlatla, reiterates that South Africa was very well represented at Davos. The World Economic Forum presents an amazing platform for business for governments, for even NGOs, to find the most unlikely of actors in the global economy in one place. And the expectation really for what I, from my observation, felt was uh, a uh, 
a brilliant representation of ministers of South Africa and, and a vast array of businesses. To explain our economy, its challenges, its opportunities, as well as the African continent as a whole, I think they put their best foot forward. Everyone that they needed to see was there. Everyone we needed to see was there. And the best teams of South Africa um, made the best presentations. I think they, we did brilliantly. I mean, what, what remains is to recognize that the World Economic Forum is happening on the eve of what I think is a scary shift um, of investors from emerging markets mm. to focus on, on the United States, which is looking more stable. And we're hoping that uh, the move is not going to bring very, very harsh economic impact to emerging markets, including South Africa. I think that we remain in a good position. We've had very good marketers of the country, very good ministers leading the discussions and debates around the prospects. Um, it's just that everything happens in a context. They will be, from what has started happening, huge challenges on emerging markets, at least to the short to medium term. That was chairperson of the South African Industrial Development Corporation, Monsatlasa. Mobile technology is taking Africa by storm as the continent has become the second most connected region by mobile subscriptions in the world. It has also been estimated that by 2015, Africa will have 1 billion mobile subscribers as there are rapid smartphones innovations taking place in countries like Nigeria and uh, Kenya. As part of creating a conversation on mobile trends on the continent, a conference entitled Mobile East Africa 2014 will take place in Nairobi next month. The conference will focus on the theme expanding mobile data usage and driving monetization through industry collaboration. The conference will host a special address by uh, Tommy Aonen, who, uh, or rather who's been positioned by the American business magazine Forbes as the world's most influential expert in mobile technology in 2012. For more on the mobile about East Africa 2014. Here's conference organizer Matthew Dawes. In terms of mobile technology, I mean, over the last 10 years, the continent has really embraced the mobile device and therefore the services and the products that, uh, that surround the mobile. So it's essential to have a dialogue and therefore that's why I organize conferences around it so that uh, the industry can move forward and more and more ways of taking advantage and, and utilizing mobile can be found in and discussed. I mean, right from people using it for, I don't know, social networking, all the way to uh, NGOs using it, all the way to, you know, mobile banking. That's interesting, but you guys are also speaking as the title of the gathering will be expanding mobile data usage and driving monetization through industry collaboration. Tell us what do you mean by the expansion of mobile data? data or say data but um, the expansion of mobile data it's all about those products and services that feed off of the internet and, and using mobile data so you know mobile applications mobile internet um, and commerce and the expansion of that mobile data is therefore you know the increase of, of its use that's what we're focusing on when i first came into the business in 2009 and i first organized an event called mobile web africa in south africa the main plus behind that move was, was because the combination of say, the mobile device and then the internet together is, is extremely powerful. Also the idea of uh, mobile banking, it's becoming a norm in African countries. How do we expand this particular concept? I think that, that expansion is starting to kick off. But I think the, the main thing that I've personally seen over the last 
18 months is the, the expansion of e-commerce and e-commerce. That's one of the, the big areas of growth where, for example, you can go online and you can buy a, uh, a conference ticket or you can buy some sort of a, a um, subscription. And you can use mobile money to do that. So integrating mobile money into e-commerce. Now, let's uh, come back to the conference itself. Tell us what you aim to achieve through Mobile East Africa 2014. Well, the overall objective is to expand the industry, and that's through connecting businesses, whether they're small, medium, or, or large companies, and then you know, developing partnerships and business through that, and then sharing ideas and exploring successes and, and failures and business models. And that's what Mobile East Africa is all about, bringing people together so that they can discuss and converse and, and develop their businesses. It's no coincidence that you are hosting the conference in Kenya. They are a leading African country in various online initiatives, such as leading in mobile money transfer technology that has enabled financial services to reach even uh, remote villages. Uh, tell us what the rest of Africa can learn from Kenya. I think Kenya is, is seen as a, a shining light in terms of mobile development, and that's mainly because of, of the success of mobile money, but also because of the success of things like the Ushahidi as well. What, uh, what happened with, with mobile money was that there were certain conditions that uh, when they launched M-Pesa that, that really allowed the, the rapid expansion of it. But I think in general, there's a lot of innovation in, in Kenya. There's, there's a much more of a, an atmosphere of innovation. And, and I think it receives a lot of international recognition for that. But that isn't to say that that uh, innovation isn't taking place in other African countries. I, I certainly believe it is, uh, particularly places like Nigeria, but also in East Africa, if you look at Uganda and Tanzania, there's, there's a lot happening in those countries. And obviously South Africa, which has got a very developed mobile ecosystem. But uh, in Kenya in particular, I think the government um, initially supported uh, the, the development and they, they saw the, the potential of mobile um, and I think one or two other things came together where and, and that enabled uh, an atmosphere and environment of, of people embracing technology and, and they're benefiting from that. Tell us a little bit about the speakers that you'll be featuring at this year's conference at the Mobile East Africa 2014. I'm really happy with the speaker faculty that we put together. I mean, we've got some very big players in terms of, you know, like the boss of SAP, we've got IBM, we've got Safaricom, we've got Smile, so we've got the network operators in place. And then we've got some of the leading uh, mobile companies as well, you know, your bosses, um, Team Talk are, are going to be talking, as well as uh, mobile uh, marketing companies such as Trakeouts. And then, um, and then the, the, the big speaker this year that I've managed to secure is a gentleman called Tommy Herman. And uh, he's going to be delivering a special address. And uh, in Forbes, he, uh, in 2012, Forbes magazine rated him as the leading consultant in mobile in, in the world as well. So it's going to be the first time that Tommy's come to, to East Africa and into Kenya. Um, and I've heard him speak before, and he's an exceptional presenter. I mean, this is a man that he's, he's paid a lot of money to be flown around the world to advise the leading companies in the world. He's decided to come to Kenya and, and present at the event. And that was Matthew Dawes, conference organiser for the forthcoming Mobile East Africa 2014 on the line from London, speaking to Benjamin Moshatama. It's time now for our economics update. Here's Wisani.
Good evening. Egypt Central Bank will hold its largest exceptional auction today to sell $1.5 billion from its foreign reserves. The auction is significantly larger than the $40 million currency auction Egypt holds three times a week and larger than $1.3 billion it offered at its last exceptional auction in September last year. The auctions first started during ousted President Mohamed Morsi's year in office as they were used to support the Egyptian pound while tourists and investors took their foreign currency elsewhere, giving rise to a black market. More than a hundred AMCU delegates have arrived in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, where talks aimed at finding a solution to the ongoing wage strike at Impala, Anglo and Lone Min Platinum Mines have resumed a short while ago. The talks deadlocked on Friday in Johannesburg. AMCO workers are demanding an entry-level wage of $1,150. Workers at the mines have been on strike since last week Thursday. Meanwhile, a large group of striking mine workers from Lone Min Platinum in Marikana in South Africa's northwest province have gathered at the Vonderkop Stadium near Rustenburg. Tepang Mulale reports. Lone Min Mine Security continues to search and monitor all vehicles entering and leaving the mine's rolling shaft. The strike at Lone Min Platinum mine remains peaceful and no cases of violence have been reported to the police over the weekend. Meanwhile, Thousands of striking mine workers will gather at the Vonnegut Stadium, which has been their central meeting point since the strike began last week Thursday. The CCMA has set aside three days to mediate in the standoff between Anku and Vietnam mines, which they hope will end this week. Still on the strikes in South Africa, Amku shop stewards at the Anglo-American platinum shafts in Rustenburg in the northwest province have vowed to ensure that the ongoing strike at the world's biggest platinum producer does not turn violent. Reports of intimidation against non-striking workers and violence surfaced last week with police investigating several cases. As police monitor different shafts, AMCU leaders in both Kuseleka and Tembelani shafts say they will obey the rules of law. A strike continues as normal. There's no intimidation. As you see, workers, they are busy singing. Then we're going to give them the feedback again that the wage negotiations are continue until three days. As you can see, there's no any employee who have been caught injured up to so far, and we're still following up the picketing rules. And finally, analysts believe that a decision taken last week by the Nigerian Central Bank to lift the cash reserve requirement on public sector deposits held by banks is expected to push up bond yields. Nigeria hiked the cash reserve requirement on public sector deposits to 75% from 50%. Meanwhile, the Kenyan Treasury bill yields are expected to drop marginally or hold steady at a sale this week. Fixed income analysts say investors are likely to concentrate on seeking the 10-year bond in the secondary market. And that's your economics news for now.
And now for our sporting update, yes, Tammy Kosa, standing by. Welcome back. Here is your sports update. Let's start with rugby. Kenya's sevens team slammed to their lowest performance ever under new coach Paul True in the Las Vegas leg of the RIB Seven World Series. For the first time under the South African, Kenya failed to make it to the main cup quarterfinals after they lost two of their group games against Canada and South Africa. Their only victory in the group stages came on the first day when they beat Wales by 21 points to 15. This was True's third tournament in charge, having also steered Kenya through the Dubai and South African legs of the circuit. Channel Africa's Francis Muteki reports. Kenya's seventh rugby team has once again slid down the international rugby board World seven series rankings after the USA sevens, which ended at the Sunboard Stadium in Las Vegas on Sunday. By reaching the ball final, Kenya collected seven points for a total of that nine after four rounds and are now placed eight. Someone who lost to Canada in the main cup third place playoffs leapfrogged Kenya to move seventh. Kenya and Samoa were tied at that two points before the Las Vegas leg. Nigeria's Minister of Sports, Bolaji Abdullahi, has promised to give the Super Eagles 100,000 US dollars if they beat Ghana and qualify for the finals of the 2014 Chen tournament. The minister says that the incentive was government's way of motivating the players to give their best. Tony Obani reports. It will be recorded that the minister also promised $10,000 if they overcome Morocco. And indeed, that $10,000 has already gone their way. And uh, another $10,000 is being uh, dangled before the players. And knowing Nigeria, I think it's good to say, you know, in that team, that petty, untired part in the Nigerian squad, definitely that money will come their way. And once the dots are set on after that, four three win over Morocco in uh, the quarterfinal. Still in football, South African national under-20 women's team's World Cup dreams were dashed, losing by a goal to nil to Nigeria in the second leg of the FIFA Under-20 Women's World Cup qualifier that took place at the Dobsonville Stadium on Saturday. The Falcons of Nigeria progressed to the finals with a 7-0 aggregate win. Nigeria will be one of the two nations representing Africa when the FIFA Under-20 Women's World Cup kick-off in Canada later this year. South Africa's Football Association Acting Technical Director Fran Hilton-Smith says despite the defeat on Saturday, Basetana gave a much-improved performance. Well, certainly the performance on Saturday was much better than the first leg where they lost 6-0 in Nigeria. Uh, yeah, they conceded only one goal, which looked a bit uh, offside, but anyway. So a much better performance by the girls. I think they got over the initial uh, shock of pain against a very strong... Uh, and our local football following their poor start at the year, Orlando Paris captain Lakili Huati insists that his teammates will go all out to grab maximum points when they face Ice Cape Town tonight. Pirates will host Ice Cape Town in an AFSA Premiership encounter at the Orlando Stadium this evening at half past seven Central African time. They are coming off a one nil all stale in a they are coming off a one all stalemate rather against Amazulu last week. Heading into the Clash, Pirates are ninth on the log standings with the Mother City side in the eighth spot. The two sides are separated by two points. 
And now in tennis, the national selectors will be making a major statement about how they plan to rebalance the South African protest site in the absence of the great betting all-rounder Jacques Hallis when they named the squad for the Australian Test Series in Johannesburg on Wednesday. Protest spokesperson Michael Owen-Smith says that they will be balancing the site after Jacques Hallis retired from Test Cricket. We'll be announcing a squad on Wednesday for the three-match series, so it could be anything up to about 15 players. There's one obvious change that has to be made with Jacques Callister retired from Test Cricket, so the selectors have to decide how best to balance the side in his, in his absence, whether they go with a specialist batsman to fill that role, whether they want more of an all-rounder who can fill both the batting and the, and the bowling role for him and how they redistribute responsibility, because obviously you can't just replace your colours. He's a unique player in the world. And finally, on the positive side of tennis, South African sports star Lucas Tolle reached the, both the quad singles and doubles finals at the Australian Open Grand Slam. Although his hopes of winning his second Grand Slam in six months did not materialize, Sitole did South African proud. Sitole was the first wheelchair tennis player from Africa to play in both the singles and doubles final of the Australian Open. South African Sports Awards Coach of the Year 2013, Hol Galosh, says that they are proud of Lucas for reaching his second Grand Slam final. And that's your sports update on Challenge Africa. Back to look to Hupedi Namane. This is Africa Digest. And that's a wrap of our show tonight. From myself, Kope Diwana, Mani producer, Luanda Maome, technical producers, Fesso Mashekwa and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening to Africa Digest. For comments on the show, send your emails to info at channelafrica.org. Taking us now to top of the hour, here is Asante Sana by The Soil.